All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to be back in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to see Paul there continue his argument of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. If you remember last time when we looked at verses 1 through 5, we saw there Paul make this argument of their experience of salvation. He was pointing them to what had happened in their life that validated this gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them. If you remember, we saw Paul make the points that they were saved by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. We saw Paul make the point that they were saved through the Spirit, through the regenerating work and the gift of faith, not by works of the law. And we saw Paul make the point that not only were they regenerated and saved by the Spirit, but they were being sanctified by the Spirit. The Spirit was continuing to work in their life, and that was happening by the power of the Spirit and not by works of the law. So as we turn this morning to verse 6, what Paul's going to do is continue this argument, but he's going to make the argument of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not from experience, but by Scripture. He's going to open up God's Word as revealed in the Old Testament to them. It's what we'll see is that Paul spends five verses talking about experience, and he's going to spend the next two chapters expounding Scripture to them. And if we notice, if we think about who the audience Paul is originally communicating to here, we have Gentile Christians in the church of Galatia. And what he's going to do is not tell them to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament, Rather, what he's going to do is point out to them that their faith is indeed hitched to the Old Testament. So their faith and ours is not somehow disconnected, separate from the Old Testament. Their faith and ours is a fulfillment of the promises that come from the Scriptures, that come from the Old Testament. And what we have from Genesis to Revelation is one grand story, one meta-narrative of God redeeming a people for Himself through the blood of His Son. And so we'll see here, as I mentioned in that emphasis, that we have five verses dealing with experience and then two chapters dealing with Scripture. What Paul's pointing us to here is that it's not our experience, but rather it's God's Word that is the final and ultimate authority. So let's begin and read verses 6 through 9 of Galatians chapter 3. So hear the inspired and errant and infallible word of the Lord. So just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, that as those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So our outline this morning is going to be pretty simple. We have two points. In verses 6 and 7, we're going to see the exclusivity of the gospel. And then in verses 8 and 9, we're going to see the inclusivity of the gospel. So let's begin in verse 6 as we look at the exclusivity of the Gospel. So just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. So you notice how our text this morning begins. It says, just as, or the NASB renders that even so. So this is connecting us back to verses 1 through 5, this appeal to experience that we just talked about. So what Paul here is basically communicating is, is that in the same way that the Galatians believe God through Paul's preaching of the Gospel to them, and thus it was counted to them as righteousness, in the same way Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we have to ask the question, well, why does Paul here begin this argument from a- with Abraham? There's lots of places that he could start with, and there's other places that he goes, but why is the focus going to be on Abraham? And we're going to see this continuing throughout Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Well, the Judaizers understood some things rightly. They understood that being a child of God meant being a child of Abraham. If you remember as we walk through John's Gospel, what did the Jews there tell Jesus in John chapter 8? They say, we are the offspring of Abraham. Abraham is our father. And so the Jews recognized that reality for them. And so the Judaizers, what they had come and were telling the churches there in Galatia, and as we saw as we looked back in Acts, this was the common theme, that they were kind of following Paul around, going to these churches, speaking the same um, false teaching that we see here in Galatians. That they're basically saying that until these Christians, these Gentiles are circumcised, then they really can't call Abraham their father, and so they're not true children of God. They were probably using Genesis chapter 17 as sort of the proof text for this. So Genesis 17 verses 9 through 11 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So if we just look at that verse as a proof text, that seems maybe pretty clear on the side of the Judaizers, right? It's a covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring, and they shall be circumcised. So seems clear. And I think this should be a warning to us that we have to be really careful when someone comes to us proof texting Scripture. We have to make sure we understand the whole context, understand what God's Word is actually saying. Because the problem here is that it's not just that the Judaizers had perverted and corrupted the Gospel, they were perverting and corrupting the teaching from the Old Testament. And this wasn't something that was just happening in Paul's day with the Judaizers, this was really a tradition that had developed among the Jewish people. We can see from two quotes here from um, a couple of apocryphal books. So these are books written between the close of the Old Testament canon and between the writing of the New Testament canon. So this is when, when God was silent in Israel, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't, there wasn't so people writing things. It was just not inspired Scripture. So these are books that were never considered Scripture by the people of God, not by the Jews in the Old Testament. They, weren't, they were never laid up in the temple in the same way that God's other Scriptures were. But 
The reason why some people today consider them scriptures is that as a response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church actually declared the apocryphal books to be a part of scripture in the Council of Trent, kind of as a post-Reformation response. And so what we'll see here is that these are actually contrary to what, we, what we're going to read in Genesis and also contrary to what Paul is teaching here in Galatians. But it kind of tells us, okay, th- this was the tradition that had, had been developed among the Jewish people. So first we're going to look at Sirach, and this is verses 44, or chapter 44, verses 19 through 21. So it says, Abraham was a great father of many people. In glory there was none like him who kept the law of the Most High, and he was in covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh, and when, he proved, and when he was proved, he was found faithful. Therefore he assured him by an oath that he would bless the nations in his seed, and that he would multiply him as the dust of the earth, and exalt his seed as the stars, and cause them to inherit from sea to sea, and from river unto the uttermost parts of the land. And so, that, that was um, Sirach written about 200 B.C. And so here's 1 Maccabees written about 100 years later. It says, Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation? And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So, so notice in the first quote there that we have Abraham proving that he was found faithful. And so because of his faithfulness, God then assures him with an oath. And then in 1 Maccabees, it says, Was not Abraham found faithful? And then his faithfulness, his working being then imputed to him for righteousness. So everyone involved here agrees that Abraham was righteous. The question is the source of that righteousness. So the Judaizers, they rightly understood that being a child of God meant being a child of Abraham. But what they were doing is they were confusing Abraham's physical descendants with Abraham's spiritual descendants. And then they also misunderstood how one actually became a spiritual child of Abraham. So to put it in the language that Paul has used in Galatians, the question was still, is it by works of the law or is it hearing with faith? And this wasn't a hard argument for Paul. What Paul does is he just goes two chapters earlier in Genesis to make his point. And we heard that in the scripture reading this morning that Paul actually begins quoting in Genesis 15 and then later quotes Genesis 12 and 18. And, and this text in Genesis 15 is really the lens that Paul wants us to interpret that later text through. And so Genesis 15, 6 says, And he, speaking of Abraham, believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if we want to look at Romans chapter 4, we can turn there and Paul again quotes this text from Genesis, but there he expands upon his explanation. So I want to go to that text and I want to unpack that for us a little bit to to pull out a few of the points that Paul makes here. So so Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And here's quoting Genesis 15, 6 again. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I just want to make... Five observations here from the text. Notice in verse 2 that faith excludes boasting. 
Abraham didn't do anything to merit his salvation. Therefore, he has nothing to boast in. Faith is a gift of God. And receiving a gift is not something that you can boast that you did this great thing because someone decided to give you a gift. In verse 3, the word counted there, that's quoted from Genesis 15.6, it means reckoned. It means put something to a person's account. So basically, it's something outside of a person then being credited to him. So it says the reformer spoke of, it's an alien righteousness here that's being granted. It's not a righteousness given by something that you've done. It's a righteousness that originates and exists fully outside of yourself that's then being credited, being imputed to you. In verse 4, notice that works equals wages. We all understand this, right? When we go to our job, when we maybe for children, we do a job at home where our parents said they're, they're going to give us money. Well, when they do, that's not a gift. That's wages. And so Paul makes that point here that, no, it, it, if you're earning this, if you're getting wages for this, then it's, it can't be called a gift. It's, it would be called wages. And again, Abraham didn't do anything to earn his salvation. It was a gift given by God. And in verse 5, Notice that it's not being godly that saves you. So it's not being godly that saves you. It's belief in a God who justifies the ungodly that saves you. And then verse 6, Abraham's faith was not his righteousness. That's important for us to understand because we can make the error of assuming that basically faith becomes a work, right? That we're trusting in our faith. But no, His faith was credited as righteousness. So when Abraham believed, when we believed, we're united with Christ, and Christ is our righteousness. We're not trusting in our faith to make us righteous. We're trusting in Christ who is our righteousness for us to be righteous. And Paul continues in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So here he's speaking of the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. So he says, Know that it is the faith who are the sons of Abraham, the, the spiritual children of Abraham. So notice what it's not. It's not those of a Jewish heritage that are sons of Abraham. It's not those that are circumcised that are sons of Abraham. And to put it in our context today, it's not those born into Christian families that are sons of Abraham. It's not those that are members of a church that are children of Abraham. It's not those that have been baptized who are sons of Abraham. It's not those that have repeated a prayer and walked an aisle that are the sons of Abraham. It's not those who obey God's commandments that are children of Abraham. No, it's those of faith who are the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham and thus the children of God. It's those people that respond in hearing with faith that are spiritual children through the new covenant. So yes, Abraham was a father of the Jewish people, but Abraham was justified when? When he was a Gentile, so that he could be the father of both Jews and Gentiles in the faith. So there's one way of salvation for all time. We see that's spoken of in Acts chapter 4, verses 11-12. through 12. Here's what Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there's no other name. Salvation in no one else. This goes from the beginning of time in humanity, from from Adam and Eve, all the way to the consummation of all things. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. So we we speak a lot of being Christ-centered, which I think that's a good thing, even though that name could be overused. But here in terms of salvation, we're not Christ-centered, we're Christ-exclusive. It's not just that we're centered around Christ. There is no other way. Yeah, there's other people that claim the name of Christ that want to add things to that. So yeah, they, they, they could even, in a sense, claim to be Christ-centered. Well, yeah, we, we need Christ, but we also need you know, this work. We also need baptism. We also need circumcision. That's what the, the Judaizers were saying, right? They weren't denying the need for Christ. They were denying the sufficiency of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. Then we can rejoice here in the words of Romans 4 as Paul continues. He says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, meaning Abraham's sake. They weren't written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's a legend among the Swiss people of a rider who's riding along and he crosses a lake, Lake Constance, by night without knowing that he's actually crossed over a lake. And so most of us probably, I mean, we live in Texas. I mean, how many frozen lakes have we seen? Um, most of us. But we, we don't necessarily grasp the implications of that. You think about a person riding on a horse over this huge body of water that's frozen. I mean, what could have easily happened at any moment across that ride? boom, down into the water, headed off to eternity, right? And so when the rider gets to the other side and is told what he'd actually done unknowingly, he breaks down and is horrified at that reality. And so I think as Christians in the same way, when God in an instant saves us, redeems us, we look back and see at where we once were. I mean, we were... Paul describes this in Ephesians, we were enemies of God. We were children of the devil. That's who we once were. We were once like that rider you know, over that, that great abyss, that great depth there. But God graciously brings us to the other side and saves us. We were once doomed, but we, we've been miraculously saved by God's grace and have escaped this once mortal danger. So that's So if you're in Christ, that's you on the other side, right? Safe and sound in Him. But if you find yourself outside of Christ today, where are you still at in that analogy? You're still out over that lake. You're still out over that abyss. You're still not seeing it. Just like that rider, he couldn't see it. I mean, he thought he was running on solid ground. But no, he he was treading over what in any moment could have been mortal danger for him. At any moment, he could have fallen through that ice. And so by God's grace, if you're in the sound of my voice and that's you, in His grace and His providence, that hasn't happened to you yet. But 
You ought not to presume upon the Lord and think that, oh, I've got another five years, ten years. I'll think about these things, you know, when I'm older. I, I hear these things of God. I've heard these things before, but you know, I just really I don't want to do that right now. I don't want to think about those things right now. That's not that's not something, especially for you children. Oh, I, I can do this later. I'll put that off. I want to tell you no. No. The call to you is to come to Christ today. And it's not just that you will find some kind of earthly safety and security like that rider on the other side felt. No, it's that you will find eternal security in Christ. That you will find eternal communion with the true and living God. That's what you're to come to today. As Christ says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the call today is to come. You've been laboring, trying to be made right with God on your own, thinking that you could do enough works to be made right with Him. Maybe now you see that that is impossible, that you don't need your own righteousness. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of you, this alien righteousness that comes from Christ. Jesus says, come. Maybe you're heavy laden with your sin. Maybe you feel like Christian and Pilgrim's progress is weighed down by the weight of your sin. And you recognize there's nothing that you can do to relieve that burden. Well, Jesus says, come. And He will give you rest. He says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And in Mark 10, let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. So if that's you today, if you sit here outside of Christ, Jesus says, come. Scripture commands you to come, to repent, to believe, to put your faith and trust in His finished work alone. And His righteousness will be counted to you if you come to God with an empty hand of faith. So that's the exclusivity of the Gospel. There is no other way. There is no other name outside of Christ by which we must be saved. So Paul corrected the Galatians' misunderstanding regarding the exclusivity of the Gospel. The salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And next, he's going to correct their misunderstanding regarding the inclusivity of the Gospel. Verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So as we go through this theological argument, it's really easy to come to this verse and miss how it begins. It's very significant, though not directly to Paul's point here. It says, And the Scripture, foreseeing... So we know the truth from 2 Timothy 3.16 and other places that all Scripture is theonustos. All Scripture is breathed out by God. But here in Galatians, Paul's actually identifying Scripture as an extension of God Himself. He's saying when you read Scripture, it's no less than the voice of God. This is not just you know, some book of wisdom written by men. 
This is words from the very mouth of God. And I want to ask, do we approach it in that way? I mean, first of all, if you have a book of words from God, wouldn't you think that's a book that you would open up and read, Christian, regularly? I mean, that almost seems obvious, right? I mean, we go to places, you know, social media, news outlets, all these things to get a bunch of words of men that at the end of the day are just foolishness. And in doing that, we're neglecting the very words of God. And then when we read this, if we recognize this is the words of God, what should our heart attitude be toward what we're going to read there? It should be one of obedience, right? I mean, we're coming, recognizing whatever this says, even though I may not like it, this is what I'm called to. This is what I'm called to obey. And as a Christian, you will like it because you have a new heart with new desires. As it says in 1 John, His commands are not burdensome for you. So Christian, I want us to think about that. That's something to meditate upon this week. I said, even it's not the prime um, focus of the text here, it really, it's a remarkable statement to equate the words of Scripture with God Himself. So notice then what Paul says. He says, that foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So there's that word justification that we've talked a lot about, but I think... Um, it's, it's one of those terms that especially with as many young people as we have, I was even kind of quizzing my children last night as we talked about this text. Okay, tell, tell me what justification is. And I think that even the youngest ones have heard it a lot, but you know, it's hard for them to, to put their, wrap their mind around and articulate. So I just want to stress again, what is justification? Just, it's a forensic, it's a law court term. We have someone over here that's been found guilty and then they are declared as righteous. So the, the root word for justify and the, and the root word for righteous, it's actually the same word. And so we could call it righteify even. That, that when someone is justified, they are declared, they are imputed to be righteous. And then Paul again goes on to quote from Genesis. And he's, he's actually going to quote from a combination of Genesis chapter 12 and 18. Genesis chapter two verses or twelve verses two and three says, "I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed." In Genesis eighteen, verse eighteen, seeing that Abraham shall surely be a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So, what is it then that Scripture foresaw? Well, Scripture foresaw that salvation wasn't just reserved for ethnically Jewish people. We talked about this in the men's meeting yesterday when we came to the book of Jonah. You know, there we saw just this miraculous contrast of this prophet of God who is really denying God and running away from Him. And then, you know, in chapter one, we, we, we looked at here you have these Gentile sailors who, at the end of that chapter, end up fearing Yahweh, fearing the true God. They begin by calling out to their own gods. At the end, they are worshiping 
the true and living God and making vows and sacrifices to Him. There's that contrast. And we see that throughout Scripture that, it, that, it, that salvation was not ever intended just for the Jewish people. Salvation was to be extended to every tongue and tribe and people. To all of Abraham's spiritual descendants via the New Covenant. So again, this was a promise that was given to Abraham in the book of Genesis, but it's something as you look at just the flow of redemptive history, you'll see it throughout the Scripture. For example, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, Isaiah says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring him back to the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So again, this is not an isolated thing that we see just in the promise to Abraham. This is something that we see unfolding throughout the Old Testament. That God, His salvation is going to go to all nations throughout the ends of the earth. And I think even more remarkable to that is when we go to Matthew 28 and we think about the Great Commission, that not only is God going to do that, but we, by fulfilling the Great Commission, get to be a part of God's fulfillment of this Gospel message going out to all nations. So Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go out, make disciples of all nations, proclaim the truth of the Gospel of them, teach them all that God has commanded. And He has promised to be with us to the end of the age in doing that. And then we actually see in Revelation chapter 7, the prophetic vision of this absolute certainty of the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. So Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so, we've seen that the Gospel is an exclusive Gospel, that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved other than that of Christ. But we also see that from Genesis to Revelation, this Gospel is an inclusive Gospel. It's, in, it's expanded out to all peoples, extended to them, to every tribe and tongue and nation. Theologian George Ladd says this, he says, God alone, who has told us that this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations, He'll know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is not done. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Christian, that's the word for us. 
Let us get busy and complete our mission of proclaiming this gospel to every tongue, every tribe, every nation, recognizing that God will save a great multitude that no one can number. So Paul concludes in Galatians 3.9. It says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those of faith... Those are Abraham's spiritual descendants, and they're blessed with Abraham as being a part of the new covenant. So Abraham, he looked forward to this Messiah who would come. Right? We've, we've talked about this a lot. This, this seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 that we know was promised from the time of the fall that was going to come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Abraham looked forward to that promised Messiah. We look backward at the Messiah that came. We look, for, we look backward at the God-man Jesus Christ who came to earth. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. Went to the cross. Took the punishment that we justly and rightly deserve. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So just to conclude, we've seen that the Gospel is exclusive. That justification, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith, that is the dividing line. That's the different Gospel that Paul spoke of in Galatians chapter 1. And what did he say about that Gospel? Those people believing that Gospel. He said, anathema, accursed, Eternally devoted to destruction. So if you're believing, if you're preaching a different gospel than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, accursed anathema, devoted to destruction. It's the confusion and and perversion that we saw happening in those apocryphal books where they were twisting the teaching of the Old Testament. It's the difference between all the religions of the world that say you must do this and biblical Christianity which says it is finished in Christ. And then it was the battle of the Reformation. Some of you probably saw this week as I did that it was this week in 1555 that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake under the reign of Queen Mary for their proclamation of this very truth, the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hugh Latimer said this in one of his sermons. In one of his sermons, he described saving faith as a faith that embraceth Christ and trusteth to His merits, a lively faith, a justifying faith, a faith that maketh a man righteous, without respect to works. Again, that's the dividing line, saints. It's not the necessity of Christ. It's the sufficiency of Christ. The the sufficiency of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Him. And the quote that Hugh Latimer is most known for is that when they burned in the flames, he urged his co-martyr Nicholas Ridley Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. 
We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So church, these men, like so many men and women before us, they understood that there are certain truths that are worth dying for. And that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is one of those truths. And if we think about it in our day, I mean, in America, at least for now, this is not something that we have to so much worry about facing, right? I mean, we may go out and proclaim the gospel and get mocked. Even though the day might be coming, and it certainly come for our brothers and sisters around the world. But saints, remember, the gospel is inclusive. It's a gospel that needs to be heralded throughout the world. Needs to be heralded in our homes, needs to be heralded in our schools, needs to be heralded out on the street, in our workplaces, wherever we find ourselves. We need to be heralding the truth of the gospel. And so, saints, I think as we sung this morning about Hebrews 11 and just the, the, the faith hall of fame there, as it were, where we look at all the saints in biblical history that have went before us and how they lived out this faith. And we look at men like these reformers, how they lived out their faith. Church history is lined with men and women like that. I think it's important for us to, to look to those men and women as examples and as they did, boldly go proclaim the truth of this gospel to every tongue and every tribe and every nation, trusting in what we see in Revelation chapter 7, that God will indeed save a great multitude for Himself, a multitude so great that no one can number. Let's pray and ask for His help in that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we once again thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that as we spoke of that we would recognize it for what it is. It's the words that come from Your very mouth. That we would come to it with a heart of obedience. We're not to be justified, but because we have been justified. Because Christ's righteousness has been counted to us. Lord, help us not look to anything outside of Him. And Lord, give us grace as we Lord, become heralds and ambassadors for the Gospel. Help us to speak Your truth boldly, recognizing that Your Gospel is exclusive, that there is no other way. Help us not to water that down, where that's the most unloving thing that we can do, but help us to proclaim it clearly and boldly, recognizing that it is also an inclusive Gospel. Lord, it's not just a Gospel for our little holy huddle here, or just for people within our, our friend group. But Lord, it's a gospel for the whole world. Lord, I pray that Your kingdom would powerfully advance, Lord, among, among us and throughout every nation. Lord, that Christ may be magnified and You glorified. And it's in His name I pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.